You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. We are here to discuss Ruthless People, which came out in 1986. It was directed by Jim Abrams, David Zucker, and Jerry Zucker. It stars Bette Midler, Danny DeVito, Judge Reinhold, Helen Slater, Bill Pullman, Anita Morris, and Art Evans. And the genre would be dark comedy. Now, growing up in the 1980s, I had a pretty unique relationship to Disney, as believe it or not, they were the studio that mostly introduced me to R-rated films as a preteen. Yeah, sure, you had your R-rated Nightmare on Elm Street and Beverly Hills Cops, but it was actually the newly established, in 1984, Touchstone Pictures label, which was under Disney, that I associated with a lot of the best movies with the most bad words. During the second half of the decade, no studio was better at putting out profane comedies on a consistent basis than Touchstone Pictures. And this includes Good Morning Vietnam, Outrageous Fortune, Tin Men, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Stakeout, and even Adventures in Babysitting, which technically wasn't R-rated, but still featured one of the best uses of the F-word I had ever heard. And probably my personal favorite of that group was this gem directed by the Zazz Trio, as they were known, Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker, in between a legendary run of full-on spoof classics that they had put out, including Airplane, Naked Gun, and Top Secret. They had already built up a strong reputation for spoof films with nonstop gags that just wouldn't quit. But the thing was, Ruthless People wasn't a spoof. This was a full-on straight narrative comedy starring the queen of 80s R-rated comedies herself, Bette Midler. Besides Whoopi Goldberg, I can't think of another actress who had better honed the fine craft of profane, go-for-broke comedy. Midler set the standard, and we wouldn't see another actress come close until probably a couple of decades later with Melissa McCarthy. There are just so many gems that were probably not the most appropriate thing for an impressionable 11-year-old boy to hear. When they track you down, you, your entire family, everyone you ever knew, will all get chainsaw enemas, and that's not all. And Midler is, of course, lined up against the equally legendary Danny DeVito in one of his best performances as her irredeemably sleazy clothing mogul husband, who was hoping to kill her, but then ends up seizing the day when he finds out that she's been kidnapped and being held for ransom. I can't think of many other actors who could pull off playing a character this sleazy and yet strangely likable than Danny DeVito. And it's a truly inspired, crazy plot that basically plays like a much funnier version of Ransom or Fargo. Her father was very, very rich and very, very sick. The doctors assured me he'd be dead any minute. There wasn't a second to lose. I rushed right out and married the boss's daughter. 
He was so sick. It was like the angel of death was sitting in the room with him, watching the clock. They pulled a plug on him. He wheezed and shook for about an hour. And then he stabilized. That son of a bitch just got older and sicker. And old and sicker and older and sicker. More coffee, sir? No. The whole cast is just game for this insanity, and it's a strong cast. Judge Reinhold, Anita Morris, Helen Slater, Art Evans, Bill Pullman, and even William Schilling, who I knew at the time as the principal from the head of the class show playing on TV. And he's playing someone who is definitively not as wholesome as a high school principal. Everybody is given their moment to shine, especially Pullman, who is memorable as the, quote, stupidest person on the face of the earth. The laughs just keep coming throughout, but the story stays focused all the way up to its absurd conclusion where all parties meet for a ransom drop in the middle of Los Angeles, which predictably goes awry. You can go now. Now don't follow me. Understand? We understand. Don't move. Who the hell are you? What the hell is going on? I'm robbing you. Stop him. Did you shoot at me? No, you moron. There's police all over the place. Hundreds of them. Do I look that stupid? Yes, you do. This was one of the best comedies of the 80s or any decade, honestly. And it's also a sad reminder of how much I miss Touchstone Pictures and a time when Disney would crank out great movies for just adults. And that brings us to the categories. The first category is Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film. Now, this film has a pretty solid soundtrack filled with quite a few big names from the 80s, including Luther Vandross, Cool and the Gang, and Bruce Springsteen. But for me, the best track is one of my personal favorites growing up, Long Island's own Billy Joel. And his contribution comes during probably the most life-affirming sequence in an otherwise relatively mean-spirited movie. We are treated to a training montage of Bette Midler's Barbara Stone working out in the basement where she's been kept hostage. She's doing push-ups off the metal bar of the side of her bed, deadlifts with paint cans, jumping rope but with chains, the works. And over this inspiring sequence, we hear Joel's Modern Woman, which is a song he wrote and performed for this very movie. It's certainly not among his greatest songs, but it's fun, and it fits the scene perfectly, with a very much of its time boppy pace, his signature piano grooves, and even some sax thrown in there, just to remind us that we were in the mid-80s. You see her sitting with a coffee and a paper with a high-top sneakers of Italian design. The long, cool stare, she aggravates attention. Makes up a face while she makes up her mind. Don't try to put on an act you can't do that to hot done to woman. And you're in the fashion man, she understands and takes your And that brings us to the next category, which would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, speaking of that soundtrack, 
what is Mick Jagger doing on the title track, which we hear throughout the movie? He's apparently performing this song technically solo with a backup band he would occasionally use when he wasn't doing stuff with the Stones during the 1980s. And here's the thing. The title song in its design isn't actually bad, except when we just hear his vocals. The chorus is lively, as is the main hook of the song, but Jagger just sounds like he's in a completely different song and a completely different movie. Something done by Nick Cave in the 90s for something independent, more dreary, more meditative. It just sounds off. And we actually hear it not only during the opening credits, but in snippets throughout the movie. And the song actually has quite a pedigree, too. Jagger wrote and produced it along with David Stewart, who was then co-producing the Eurythmics with Annie Lennox, and Daryl Hall of the legendary rock duo Hall & Oates. So yeah, that kind of even makes it more obvious. This song would have probably sounded a lot better if Daryl Hall or Annie Lennox were doing the vocals. Oh well, at least this wasn't as embarrassing for Jagger as the video he did with David Bowie for Dancing in the Streets. The next category would be trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, this is going to spoil a key point in the story, but it's just a true comic highlight featuring our two main stars, so I had to pick it. So, spoiler alert, spoiler alert again, although keep in mind, it's a comedy, so take this with a grain of salt. All right, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, Barbara Stone, Bette Midler's character, finds out that her husband has been having a very public affair, and beyond that... She's become increasingly friendly with her so-called kidnappers, who had actually let her go by this point. And the kidnappers are played by Judge Reinhold and Helen Slater. And they're played very sympathetically, actually. So she comes back to their home to their amazement and plots revenge on her husband, who up until this point had made it very clear that he really didn't care about Barbara. Oh, and the police just found evidence at Sam's home, that's Danny DeVito's character, that he'd been planning to kill Barbara. So now DeVito's Sam is suddenly more desperate to get her back just so he could prove his innocence. So, now that Barbara is aligned with her kidnappers, they decide to take advantage of the situation and bleed as much money as they can out of Sam for the ransom. And the strategy they use basically involves sizzling tofu burgers and some canny acting on Barbara's part. Reinhold is going full throttle playing his part as the threatening kidnapper. Slater is gleefully pushing her spatula down on those tofu burgers. Midler is doing her best horror screams. And DeVito is just pathetically reacting to all of this as only his character can. This is your trailer moment. She's in bad shape, Sam. You've been torturing her. Ah! Ah! Don't kill her! Don't kill her! We found out your wife is worth quite a bit more than 10000 What do you mean? We changed our minds. We've upped the ransom. To what? We're up to $2 million. $2 million?! Are you out of your fucking mind? Where'd you get an incredible figure like that? Oh, you'd be surprised at the quality and quantity of information a lit cigarette can provide. Ah! What else? Shams! He's got rare gems in the safe! Oh, oh, Sam, forgive me! What kind of gems? How many? I 
And that brings us to the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Wow, this was really tough. Now, Bette Midler is a comedy goddess, and I bow to her. But if I'm being honest, Danny DeVito was equally good in this, as he was quite the king of comedy at his best. And the rest of the cast, they also come to play too. So it feels unfair to single anyone out from the cast. As with the directors, of which there were three, the Zucker-Abram-Zucker trio, they were clearly playing outside of their comfort zone, not doing a spoof here, and they deserve major props. But there's one element of this film which really brings it all together, and that's the screenplay. Not only is it filled with hysterically profane dialogue, but it's structured with twists and turns as intricately as any number of more serious films treading this kind of narrative territory about hostage situations gone awry. I mean, for just how well this film was written, you could compare it to films like Argo, Man on Fire. It's on that level, but it's actually managing to be funny at the same time. Of course, it could only come from the same man who a few years later would craft two equally tricky crime-based comedies, which would also tread very delicately with tone to both be ingenious and funny at the same time. Those two films were My Cousin Vinny and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and the writer is Dale Launer. And if you've seen all three of these films, you feel his style in each of them. He'll take his protagonists on some wild tangents. Remember the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and that crazy scene with Steve Martin playing Rupert as the younger brother? That's what I'm talking about. But damn if Dale Launer doesn't always keep the story tight and even throws you a few surprises your way before it's all over. I don't care what anyone says, but writing this kind of twisty plot-driven comedy focusing on generally less than sympathetic characters, it has to be one of the most difficult challenges imaginable for any screenwriter. And he actually pulled it off three times. Sadly, Dale Launer hasn't really written anything produced in more than 15 years. He kind of fell off after My Cousin Vinny in 92, and I'm not sure why. Hey, who knows? Maybe he's just living comfortably off the royalties. But no matter, Dale Launer is the MVP for this comedic gem, and I salute him. Now, have you got all the money? $2.2 million in unmarked, non-sequential bills? You miserable, scum-sucking pig! Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. They made me say that. Yeah, I got all the money. And it's all there in the briefcase? You scumbag, you low-life motherfucker! Oh, dear. They made me say that, too. It's in the case, yeah. My overall rating for Ruthless People would be four and a half stars out of five. <laughs> this remains one of the best comedies to come out of the 1980s. It's highly quotable, and it features some big comedic stars at the top of their game. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Ruthless People is available to rent or buy on all streaming platforms. And that ends another devious review. Please subscribe to the Living for the Cinema podcast. Follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.